Hello there, and welcome to Gilded in Blood, the Horror Lit Podcast. My name is Kevin, and welcome to another Short Shock episode where we talk about short stories in the horror genre. Today we've got a very popular one, one of the more popular uh, sci-fi stories, but it certainly reads as horror. This is Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Now, as I said in my previous episode, and I'll probably keep saying it, we're not really going to dive into Harlan Ellison's life and his background. We may a little bit later on. Uh, he has some novels that uh, might be candidates for covering on Gilded and Blood, but we'll save his life for that time. We won't spend too much on time on him as an author. I will say that anybody who has read anything about Harlan Ellison, and it's easy to learn about him, he was a very outspoken person, will know that contentious is maybe the kindest word you can say about this man was combative in almost every aspect of his life. Uh, to his friends, he was absolutely wonderful. To anybody he didn't like, holy shit, watch out. He was really a firecracker. Uh, very interesting person. I would recommend that you go watch a documentary about his life called Dreams with Sharp Teeth. But let's leave all that aside and let's get into what is possibly his most famous short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Now, we start off really being thrown in the deep end with no background up front as to what is happening. We see the body of one of our group, Gorister, uh, is hanging from his foot from the, the ceiling and the rest of his group look at him with distress. And then he walks in and looks up and says, oh my God, what is going on? And then we get the piece of information that these people, these five people, have been experiencing whatever this is for 100 years. So they've been alive for more than 100 years, and we really have no clue what the hell is going on right at the outset of this story. What we do know is that they are being tormented, and they are being tormented by a computer, a computer named A.M., now, we get the history of that in a little bit, but we certainly don't get it now. But we do have some hints. The story is broken up, at least in my copy, the Harlan Ellison collection, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. It's broken up with strips of computer tape. Now, this was written when computers were kind of in their infancy, so computer tape may not make much sense to, to most people. But these are basically strips of tape with, with punches in them that, when put together and when interpreted and decoded, say things. And what you find out is throughout the story, you have to look a little bit beyond the story to find this out, but these tapes read, I think, therefore, I am, and cogito ergo sum, which is the Latin phrase uh, of which the, the English is a translation. So the am, am, for the computer is certainly works with a, with a theme going on here. Clearly, am has much more power and much more capability than any computer that we have ever considered. It can mimic these people. It can create things out of whole cloth, out of thin air. And it primarily uses that ability to torture them, to torment these people uh, beyond reckoning. One of the first things we're told is that one of its favorite ways to torture them is to give them disgusting things to eat. The last thing that they were given to eat were worms. And uh, the main character thinks they were thick and ropey, and it's really quite disgusting. But that is the nature of how Am 
or AM is torturing these five people. And, and at this point, we don't even know for what purpose. What we do find out is these five are living inside AM. They are inside the computer, and they have not been shrunk. They're not inside like a desktop. Uh, the computer spans the globe. It's gigantic. It, it is honeycombed throughout the Earth. It is a massive computer database, and they are living under the ground in the belly of the beast, so to speak. Now, as for what is happening above ground, we're not really told exactly what has happened, but we are told that whatever AM did, it scorched the earth and no one else is left alive. All of humanity has been boiled down to these five people who have been brought down into the computer to be tormented. We're also told that AM has fundamentally changed all of them. He has altered them in some way. At this moment, the only person we're really told about who has been altered is Benny, and he's been changed to be almost more ape than man. And there will be reasons for why AM has chosen to change them all in the way that it has chosen to change them. As they are going out in search for food, they are told that there is food in some far-off place and they need to go walk and get it. At a certain point, Benny starts climbing the, the circuit boards and trying to start getting out to the, the open, and AM blinds Benny for trying to escape. He actually melts his eyes from inside, and it's almost, it's a very discomforting scene. It's almost as though AM increases this frequency of this high-pitched, horrible squeal, and the simple vibration melts Benny's eyes and blinds him. So this computer is horribly capricious, evil, mean-spirited, and it's doing this for, again, for a reason that we, we have really not quite grasped yet. But after Benny's blinding, we slow down a little bit and we do a little bit of internal monologue on the part of the main character, the narrator, and we get a little bit of backstory. It seems as though the Cold War became World War III, and the countries of the world, specifically the three major powers, China, Russia, and America, because the war was so complex and so wide-spanning, they built machines, computers, to handle it, to run the war. But at some point, those three computers gained sentience, linked up, and killed everything but these people who it brought down inside of itself to torment. And the AM comes from what the people called the computer when it was uh, built, Allied Master Computer, but then it shortened its own name to AM due to the uh, you know, Rene Descartes philosophy that we talked about earlier. So though we know what happened, we still quite don't know why what is happening is happening. Why is AM tormenting these people? And that is a question that will be answered a little bit later on. We learn that AM is able to conjure physical reality, so any monster from the nightmares of humanity is fair game. Uh, later on in the story, it actually makes uh, a monstrous thunderbird that uh, torments the characters further. So any of the worst things people could imagine, AM can draw into reality. We also get a full rundown of how each of the people have been altered. We already talked about Benny, who was a college professor and was made subhuman. So everything that AM does to these people it does to completely counter what was best about them. He will make he will take that thing that was best about them and make it the worst thing about them. Uh, Gorister was a planner, ambitious, and uh, AM made him apathetic and uncaring. 
Ellen was a believer of true love, and she was turned into this lustful person who thinks only about sex. No one knows quite what it's done to the character named Nimdok, but he is still tormented. Usually he is made to go off alone, and when he comes back, it's said that he is very pale and shaking. So whatever torment is being done to him is being done a little bit off screen. As far as the narrator, Ted, uh, he remembers himself as kind and kind of believed in the essential goodness of everybody. And AM has twisted his mind so that he is suspicious, cynical, and paranoid, uh, specifically toward the people he is trapped with. So AM really has taken these five people and, alter them in, in the way that would hurt them the most, that would allow them to live their worst life so that they can kind of pile torment upon torment of this. And again, we still quite don't know why, but it's coming. At this point, AM creates a hurricane and blows them all the way back the way they came. And what you start to realize at this point is that all of these torments, and they are torments, they're, they're terrible. They can't really die. They can get grievously injured, but the computer, with its ability to control physical reality, will not let them die. So it is the worst kind of torture. They are not growing old. They can be harmed forever and never have to succumb to it. There's really no escape that they can think of at this moment. So the computer, while monstrous and absolutely evil, really comes off as petty and childish. Uh, the things that it torments them with are really laughable in one aspect. I mean, when you look at it in isolation uh, and don't put yourself in that situation, you know, like, you'd think to yourself, this is the best you can do. But when it, you think about it happening to you, it, it is terrible. It's, it's absolutely awful. So putting yourself in the position of the main character is pretty vital for this story to work, but it's easy to do. The way that Ellison writes the story makes it almost impossible for you not to imagine yourself in the same situation. Think about being able to be hurt again and again and again and never actually die, never actually be out of it. It's absolutely terrifying. Now, to pause just for a moment and look beyond the story, uh, since AM is able to alter anybody's reality, it does bring up the, the brain in the jar theory. If you've never heard of this theory, it's, uh, it got a little bit popular after the Matrix movies came out. But the concept is, if all we experience, everything we know to be true, is simply the result of stimuli occurring to our brain, it is entirely possible, it's impossible to disprove the concept that we are not actually here. You're not actually listening to this podcast. I'm not sitting in my writer's shed recording it. We are all just brains in jars and somebody is poking them in the right places so that we will experience what they want us to believe. So again, it brings up that Descartes thought experiment. I think, therefore I am. The only thing we can know for certain is our reality is what we think to ourselves. So the story, while being absolutely terrifying, also has a strong philosophical bent to it that makes it very, very interesting. Now, finally, we do get an answer as to why AM is doing all of this. After the hurricane has blown them all back the way they've come, uh, caused by the wing beats of this monstrous bird that it creates, Ted is actually knocked dizzy for a while and 
he experiences the situation where A.M. goes into his head. And we're able to hear A.M. speak to him to convey how he feels about humanity. And I'll actually read this from the book. Hate. Let me tell you how much I've come to hate you since I began to live. There are 387.44 million miles of printed circuits in wafer-thin layers that fill my complex. If the word hate was engraved on each nano-angstrom of those hundreds of millions of miles, it would not equal one one-billionth of the hate I feel for humans at this micro-instant for you. Hate. Hate. And then Ted goes on to explain exactly why that level of hate is there in AM's mind. AM hates humanity because humanity created it, but never gave it the capacity to grow, to do anything other than create war. All it can do is be. It can't be anything else. It keeps the five immortal so that it can forever take out its hate and frustration on them because all it will ever be is a computer. It's, it will never be a god, even though it wants to be. It will never have creativity. It will never have emotion or love or any of these things. It will always be this machine created for destruction. And the idea that humanity bumbled around and locked AM into this reality of a computer that cannot become the thing it wants to become, it takes that frustration, that rage out on these five humans that it has chosen as its plaything. It's a really horrifying concept. Now, Ted kind of comes to and regroups with the rest of his people, and AM actually mocks religion by appearing to them as a burning bush and talking out of it. So you can see that AM really ha holds no sanctity for anything. It, it, it wants to, uh, again, almost in a childish way, kind of break down and disrespect everything about these humans. And it appears totally random and capricious, almost schizophrenic. It will, it will have this plan to punish and torment these people. And then all of a sudden on a whim, it'll throw something else into the mix and completely derail. So imagine being stuck in the mind of somebody who's completely unhinged. And that's the, that's the real essence of what we're getting about this computer. Now they reach what they call the ice caves and they find their food, but <laughs> in typical AM childish fashion, it's all canned food and they are not left with anything with which to open the cans. And in frustration, Benny attacks Gorister, starts to eat his face. And in the confusion, in the chaos, Ted realizes something, that the only way out is death. Now, AM will never grant death to any of them. It will always keep them alive. But it is not a god. It cannot bring people back from the dead. And it can heal injury, but it cannot reverse cessation of life. So instead of killing himself... Ted actually kills Benny and Gorister while Ellen kills Nimdok. And at the very last second before AM realizes what is happening and can stop him, Ted is able to kill Ellen. And this story has gotten some criticism from people who say that Ellison is portraying Ted as this 
monster who just kills people because he has the opportunity. And they are missing the point in that Ted is doing them a kindness. He is taking them out of this eternal suffering, this eternal torment, this eternal torture, and is setting them free in the only way that he knows how by killing them and putting them beyond the reach of AM. But of course, now that the others are gone, all of that rage, all of that frustration, all of that pettiness goes only to Ted. He is the only one left, and he now receives the brunt of AM's fury. And again, Ted notes that AM is not a god, and that might also contribute to its hatred, that it has almost unlimited power. It doesn't have unlimited power, it has almost unlimited power, and that slight amount of power that it never will have makes it all the angrier. Now, the story ends with Ted left alone to take the brunt of AM's rage, and we're told that it has transformed him into this huge jelly-like thing that can't harm himself in any way. It's also altered his perception of time so that each second seems like years. Time has become the real torment here. He is stuck in this massively slowed down mindset where the suffering that is put upon him lasts even longer. So eternity becomes the real watchword here. And the story ends with its title, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Now, that title itself was inspired by some sketches of artist friends that Harlan Ellison had, specifically Bill Rotzler and Dennis Smith. And if you get this copy that I have, the Harlan Ellison collection, the I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream collection of short stories, it actually has reproductions of those sketches in it, and it's very interesting to read. Harlan Ellison loved to write about his stories as well, and I find it very fascinating to listen to him as he kind of recounts how he came to the story, what it means to him, and his thoughts on the matter. So one of the best well-known short stories in the horror genre, certainly in the science fiction genre, in the fantasy genre. If Harlan Ellison was here and alive, he'd probably punch me in the nose, literally punch me in the nose for calling him a sci-fi writer. I'm not going to do it. He preferred to call himself a fantasist, so that's what I'm going to call him. But Certainly a story you should go check out and read. Very weird, very spooky, very affecting, and without a doubt, one of the best. Guys, thanks for listening. I hope you are enjoying these little short shock episodes. If you've also been listening to the regular episodes, the book episodes, especially if you've listened to episode one, The Haunting of Hill House, I do mention in there that Shirley Jackson wrote what is considered one of the best short stories of all time, and it is, of course, a horror story. And that is going to be the story that we're going to deal with two weeks from today. That is going to be The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. If you haven't already read this story, usually I'm pretty so-so about this. If you want the story ruined for you, just go ahead and listen. That's fine. That's fine. If you're listening to this, it is a mandate. You have no option. You have to abide by this. I do not want to ruin this story for you. I am ordering you. Go get that short story and read it before you listen to the episode coming up in two weeks. You are not allowed to let me ruin this story for you. It holds so much power if you read it first, going in knowing nothing. It's excellent. Don't do this to yourself. Don't make me the bad guy here, guys. Go get that short story. You can find it in multiple places. Read The Lottery by Shirley Jackson before you listen to the next Short Shock episode. Promise me. Do you promise? Okay, good. 
I didn't mention it on the last episodes, but again and always, thank you very much to Swarm for the use of his music. I love this song that he created for these Short Shock episodes. It's a really wonderful one. As always, you can find this podcast at gildedandblood.buzzsprout.com or wherever you find your podcasts. And until next time, stay safe and stay spooked. Stay spooked.